Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. <clears throat> You're still listening to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. Ben Job is filling in for Adam. We appreciate his sacrifice. <laughs> it's Thank not that much. bad. This is fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good deal. Good deal. But it's not too bad. No. Um, but yeah, we've got a great overtime lined up for you. Really excited about it, and um, <clears throat> and actually, uh, I said we're going to start off with the uh, breaking down stuff about the ceasefire. But actually, I, I think that that it might be helpful to talk about the ceasefire with having had the conversation about the defense industry and jobs first. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about because More Perfect Union recently put out an excellent video about the defense industry and jobs. And so I, I want to talk about that. And, and you know, we've had on this show some controversial opinions about war uh, before, and, and those controversial opinions are that it's bad. Uh, that's very, very extreme, very extreme. Really radical, uh, killing people, children, innocent civilians, destroying country, that's bad. So, you know, sue me, okay? Uh, but that's kind of my perspective. Um, but aside from, you know, the moral question, you know, is it good to murder children? You know, okay, well, that's just too difficult to kind of think about, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a very complicated question. Um, another way to think about it is, or, or at least, you know, an additional frame to think about it is, um, what More Perfect Union did last week. It was an excellent episode of The Classroom. That's a regular series that they do on YouTube. And this one is about the claim that defense spending is good for the economy, right? And that's actually, you know, amazingly, you know, that is one of the, uh, uh, one of the big things that, um, that will be the rebuttal. You know, you say, oh, uh, war is bad. It's bad for working people to murder each other. Uh, there's, it's senseless. We shouldn't do it. War is bad. The, um, you know, the enlightened kind of centrist, intelligent person is, says, it's good for jobs. It's, it makes all this money. It makes a lot of money for working people. It creates good paying union jobs. And that's why we have to murder brown people overseas because so that so that we can have good union jobs, right? Um and so, you know, I don't personally find that very persuasive, but even on its own even on its own logic, it falls. Uh, but they compiled a lot of clips from the last few weeks of politicians telling us this, tell, making this argument, war is good because 
Not because it's morally a good thing, right, to go around the globe killing people, but because it creates jobs. Let's play this clip. Politicians from both parties are trying to convince us that foreign wars are good for improving America's working class. I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. The supplemental the president put forward invests to ensure our military readiness and create American jobs. The overwhelming majority has, in fact, gone to supporting American jobs. American manufacturing, American jobs. This supplemental does build up that industrial base. This money is going to create jobs for Americans. Equipment that defends America it is made in America. This isn't a new strategy. For more than 80 years, politicians and the corporate elite have told us that war creates jobs and economic stimulus for all of us. So there we go. Creates jobs and economic stimulus. And you know, look, there's a reason that there's a reason that that argument started because it did used to have more um, you know, it used to have more legs to it, right? Um, and specifically, you know, the, the, the kind of quintessential war is good for the economy. We think about World War II. And it's also, you know, World War II is also kind of a helpful place to peg why our military, uh, why we should spend so much money on the military. Because World War II was probably like the first war since, you know, I don't know, probably one of, one of a, a, a literal handful, like you could count on one hand probably the number of, of times that America has militarily intervened and it been for and it been morally righteous and you know World War II is is one of those few times and so it's kind of a helpful it's a helpful thing a helpful propaganda piece for for people to uh, uh, for people to use because it was one of the few morally righteous wars and it was also it was also very good for the economy it created 20 million jobs it increased wages union membership increased and it created it created greater equality for women and minorities um and in fact you know one of the things like that uh, if you're talking about the economy generally you know you'll say unions are responsible for the great compression the decrease in inequality, an increase in the standard of living. There's uh, in the standard of living. There's uh, uh, pensions, time off. All of, that's because of unions. Well, one of the rebuttals to that that I've actually heard, you know, uh, in in conversations and debates with conservatives, is that no, 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 no. That's not the case. Actually, the reason for that and the economic boom in the fifties and sixties and forties was World War II defense spending and that there was no European economy for our manufacturing industry to compete with. That's the reason. It was because of World War II defense spending. Unions had nothing to do with it. So if you believe that, then what Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell and all these other warmongers in D.C. are saying right now and have said for the last uh, 20, 30, 50 years, it might make sense. But... It's not the reason that World War II was good for the economy is not just because the spigot was turned on for the defense industry, right? Listen to More Perfect Union explain some of the constraints on the spending that ensured that this money did create a good economy. And that's because President Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually pushed back against the big businesses that were building war supplies. 
Before World War II, there was no dedicated defense industry. So everyday industry like car makers pivoted to war supplies. FDR made it mandatory for those contractors to follow labor protection laws and respect unions, and he enforced it. Ford Motors won a contract to make military trucks, but refused labor protections. So FDR canceled the contract. Labor historians say this led to Ford's historic unionization just months later. FDR even threatened to seize patents for big industries that weren't helping what was perceived as the national interest. There were protections in place to prevent rampant profiteering. Then, after the war, the GI Bill gave returning troops economic opportunities like college tuition and home loans. That combination of regulation and smart social spending led to good economic times for America's middle class. So, there we go. It's not just because the spigot was turned on for the military-industrial complex. The reason that World War II defense spending was beneficial for working people is because the federal government had a really, you know, comparatively radical approach to labor relations. They canceled a contract during the war, right? I mean, could you imagine today as we are trying to ship all of the all of this stuff overseas to Ukraine and to Israel, uh, you know, Joe Biden canceling a contract for missiles with Boeing or something because of their uh, because of their labor policies. Right. I, I mean, uh, I, uh, for one, I can't even imagine that it's it's uh, unfathomable to me that Joe Biden would do that. But then if he did that, the reaction across the media, across all of the parties is completely predictable. And that reaction is. He is a radical peacenik. He is trying to use this spending for his social engineering agenda. This is, you know, anti-American. It's bad and all of this stuff. But that's how World War II defense spending was beneficial for working people. Is because the government had standards and it held the companies to those standards. And so, if that's the arrangement that we had today, you know, then maybe maybe the economy argument would hold up on its own. And, you know, that's not to say that even if even if it was true that that would be a sufficient cause for war, the war needs to be just and righteous for us to, to justify, right, going across the seas and killing people, you know? Um, so even if, it, even if the economy argument was true, you know, the, the job is not done for war hawks. They still have to justify it morally. But it doesn't even stand on its own merit, merits because listen to this where More Perfect Union explains the military-industrial economy today. Look, obviously people need jobs, and defense manufacturing jobs are seen as valuable and important in key areas around the country. But let's be honest about this. Job creation is a mere afterthought. Pennies that the defense industry drops while walking away with a giant bag of loot. Let's dig in on this. Is building weapon systems actually the most effective way to create jobs and build an economy for everyone? Research at the Watson Institute of Brown University found that over the past two decades, the Department of Defense takes an average of $260 billion a year out of the national budget. 
They calculated what could have been done with that budget jobs-wise. Spending that same amount on clean energy or healthcare would have created 50% more jobs, and education spending would have doubled the amount of new jobs. Today, Let's all pause of that- that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy, right? I mean, just think about that, right? We've got all these defense jobs because we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on the defense industry. And we could create literally twice the jobs if we spent the same amount of money on education. We could create 50% more jobs if we spent it on healthcare and clean energy. And, right, those jobs are additive themselves to the economy. You know, I mean, that's it, it makes sense. If you're a healthcare worker and you save somebody's life, well, you have, that, that, you know, um, you've gotten those wages, right? And so that's additive for your life. But then also you go, uh, you know, the, the person that you saved their life, they go around and they continue to be a productive member of society and they continue to produce and, and, and you know, create value, right? Uh, in an education context, you know, again, you're also getting that income that's valuable for you. But you are creating a new cohort of educated citizens that will be more productive when they uh, graduate. That is additive. The defense jobs are simply not additive. They are literally subtractive by their nature definitionally. When you create a bomb, its job is not to be additive for the economy. Its job is to destroy, right? So think about how much more valuable uh, if we just spent the same amount of money on education, healthcare, or clean energy. Theory is being confirmed by economic reality. The billions we've spent in Ukraine simply aren't creating new jobs. You can even track how money going directly to specific contractors doesn't create jobs. Reporting from Common Dreams found that from 2012 to 2018, Lockheed Martin's share of the American tax dollar increased by $13 billion. But in the same time, they cut more than 16,000 jobs. The situation was similar at Boeing and Raytheon. The only companies that added jobs only did so because they sucked up smaller companies and technically added their employees to their payroll. Yeah, pause and there defense for companies just a also don't care about the That is crazy. These defense companies continue to take more of our money while universally cutting jobs. They're taking more money and cutting jobs. That is not good for the economy. Okay, let's see. Mm. Taylor Barnes at Inkstick Media reported that arms companies are constantly moving their plants to states with right-to-work laws and other weak labor protections. Big union wins from World War II aren't sticking around. Lockheed had 69% unionization in 1971 and 19% in 2022. Only 4% of Northrop Grumman workers are unionized. And the jobs aren't even staying in America. One labor leader claimed a Lockheed union negotiator said to him, we are actively looking for ways to outsource your job. 
Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Justin McFarlane recently told a conference of military contractors that the DOD would support flexible acquisition, which means moving some manufacturing to allies and partners. And the defense companies work real hard to keep it this way. In 2022, when then-Representative Mondaire Jones introduced an amendment that would ban companies with NLRB or FLSA labor violations from getting defense contracts, the industry came out swinging to destroy it. They won and bragged about it. They'd keep their flow of government cash coming with no responsibility to respect workers' rights. And they can get away with it because of the monopoly they hold, which they also use to rip off the government and the taxpayer. That's how FDR helped workers, right? That, the amendment for Mondaire Jones to ban uh, contracts to employers with um, NLRB violations, NLRA violations, that's the same way that FDR created an actually beneficial war economy for the American working class. And the defense industry is explicitly against it, uniformly. Not good for the economy, not good for working people. And also in this uh, in, in this uh, video, they talk about how research and development is down over this same time period. As these companies are getting more and more money, the amount of that money that they spend is going down. Money to shareholders is going up. Money to shareholders just since 2010, right? <laughs> you know, it's only 13 years ago. Money to shareholders is up 73%. And that's, you know, look, that's when they're being honest. Because Lockheed Martin has been charged with over uh, overcharging the federal government by hundreds of millions of dollars. The F-35 is a trillion dollar uh, piece of trash, right? There's, you can find any story you want. Yeah, you know, there's stories all over the internet about how the F-35 has been a gigantic boondoggle and we continue to shovel good money after bad on this project. Tens of billions of dollars in waste, fraud, and abuse. So there we go. The, the, the argument that uh, war is good for the economy, war is good for American working people, it is not true, does not stand on its own. So there you go. We're going to talk about the UAW coming out for a ceasefire uh, here in a moment. But right now, uh, we have on Isabella and uh, Amy, right? Yes, indeed, we do have them on. Fantastic. Uh, so I am really excited about this. I found this article um, much uh, a, a long time after it, uh, <laughs> it came out. It's like, a, how old is this? Let me pull up the article, actually. It's uh, October 31st. So it is... Uh, Okay, I'm only a month behind. I was thinking it had been longer than that. But uh, but it's a really great article. Uh, what could we win together? Labor in Minnesota gears up for a major escalation. And it's an article about how labor unions in Minnesota have already been on the ball about aligning contract expirations so that they can all so that they all expire at the same time and theoretically they could all strike at the same time this is the uh, th this is the call that UAW president Sean Fain has put out to the entire labor movement and unions in Minnesota have already started doing that and so Isabella Escalona and Amy Stagger has uh, they've written an article about that and um Really excited to talk to them about it. Uh, Amy, Isabella, welcome to the program. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
Uh, really looking forward to uh, uh, to the conversation and really appreciate your work on this. This is, uh, um, uh, uh, like I said, a really great article. It's in Indies Times. Folks should check it out. Um, but just uh, start, us, start us off with kind of the top line. Uh, there's a bunch of contracts expiring uh, over the next year. What are they? Uh, I can start us off. So in Minnesota, uh, there is a pretty thriving labor movement. There's a lot of unions and worker centers, renters groups. And over the last decade or so, they've been coordinating their efforts to have a shared general kind of um, expiration timeline. So we're seeing uh, in the next few months, or maybe they've already uh, some of them have already expired. Uh, for example, the SEIU Local 26 has 4,000 commercial janitorial workers um, expiring at the very end of the year. There's another 1,000 airport workers, uh, 500 retail janitorial workers, both in uh, the end of January. Um, and then there's also 2,500 security workers at the end of February. Um, along with that, we have Metro Transit uh, bus drivers and bus operators, train operators. They had a contract expiring in the summer um, and are currently negotiating and authorized a strike a few months ago. Um, and then Amy could speak to this a bit more, but we also have the um, MFT and SPFE, which are the two teachers unions um, who also have upcoming expirations. Do you do you know what the total number of workers under these uh, contracts that that have been aligned are? Yeah, we're we've been told that it's around kind of a range of like twenty thousand to thirty thousand. Um, you know, there are a lot of public school teachers that um, in Minneapolis who went on strike, um, and uh, in. And but in addition to the Minneapolis public school teachers, the St. Paul public school teachers are also um, their contracts also expired earlier this year around June. Um, and they're still operating under um, the power of public employment labor relations act. Um, but they are currently negotiating as well. Um, so, yeah, 20,000, 30,000, I think, is kind of a range of workers. That's a uh, that's a pretty significant piece of uh, the economy over there. Uh, how long has this been in the works? When did they start? You know, when did all these unions start thinking about and and working towards aligning all these contract expirations so that they expire around the same time? And uh, and, and and you know wh what got that started? Yeah, I could jump in here. Um, so we would say about a decade. Um, it's hard to put an exact date on it, um, just because some of these have been like less, uh, you know, more informal uh, collaborations. Um, but I, previous to working as a reporter, I was working at a worker center in Minneapolis, and uh, I've kind of been in this uh, world for at least about like four or five years now. And every single year, um, the, these kind of groups of unions have either one or two weeks of action. So they're almost like mini versions of what's going on now where they mm. coordinate around maybe a shared target, um, or maybe a few different contract, uh, expirations, or, uh, maybe a different group is having a March. So they kind of share, uh, you know, May day is one of the dates that I'd seen that before happen. So, um, Every year, there's almost like a mini collaboration buildup um, to this moment. So 
I'd say a decade, but um, I would see say almost every year there's been kind of building this mm -hmm. muscle of of shared solidarity and kind of shared uh, political power analysis in Minnesota too. Gotcha. And and Amy, what uh, do you is there a documented reason why they they started trying to do this, trying to you know build solidarity, uh, you know between unions and and then specifically the goal of of aligning the contracts. Yeah. So um, what's very evident, um, we can't trace it to like a certain document or point in time, but what's very evident is that there has been a power struggle um, in the state of Minnesota going on for, you know, for ever. And, um, and currently, you know, there's a lot of unrestrained corporate and private power that is influencing how Minnesotans live and work, uh, powerful entities reaching their tentacles into every part of Minnesotans' lives, from kids' learning conditions at the schools, to pollution of neighborhoods, to abuse in the construction industry, and even lack of holiday, holiday pay and leisure time to enjoy time away from work. Um, and so uh, the unions and workers are very focused on you know, sort of educating the public on these powerful entities um, that are, you know, increasingly um, unrestrained in their power and control over our lives. And uh, is there uh, um, is there any like specific value to the coordinated contracts beyond, you know, the the obvious more is better, right? That's the whole kind of idea behind unions. When we come together, we're more powerful in one workplace, and thus it makes sense to say that in, in a geographic region, when more unions come together, we're more powerful. But I'm wondering if there are like businesses or organization, you know, in the supply chain where a strike uh, by a different set of workers would still have an impact on them, or maybe, you know, uh, they have one owner. Is there, is there any, are there any dynamics like that? Oh yeah, definitely. One um, one of the powerful groups discussed by unions and workers was the Minnesota Business Partnership, which consists mm -hmm. of executives from over a hundred companies and multinational conglomerates headquartered in the state. Um, Minnesota has at least, I think, 15 Fortune 500 companies headquartered here. Um, and four of the companies that were mentioned were uh, General Mills, which is a consistent leader within the Minnesota Business Partnership and raises money for schools with its box tops for education program while mm -hmm. lending financial support to charter schools. Um, mm -hmm. So we can see how like, you know, private power is influencing against public education. And then another company that was mentioned was Ameriprise Financial, um, a wealth management company headquartered in downtown Minneapolis that manages working people's uh, savings for retirement through pension funds. Um, and the rise in subcontracting in the 1980s eliminated pensions for many of the janitors who work cleaning the corporate offices there. Um, another uh, company that was mentioned was U.S. Bank, which is a longtime partner of Dominium, which is a housing developer and opponent of rent stabilization, which has also been a fight here in the cities. Um, and workers are also saying, too, that corporations should be paying their fair share of environmental impacts. Um, they talked about uh, 3M Company, which has faced litigation for its role in disposing forever chemicals into the environments around here. Um, and so, you know, they're hoping that, you know, collective action 
um, and solidarity with uh, their community is, you know, part of this broader strategy of, um, you know, bargaining for the public for the public good, not only to improve their members' working conditions, but to fight for a structural change within their communities. Yeah, definitely. So um, this event that we went to uh, back in October, where there were thousands of these union members all together in one space, um, really it was around four pillars. So uh, better, you know, livable, family-sustaining jobs, cleaner environment, uh, affordable, truly affordable housing and good schools. Um, so something, you know, some of these groups will see is, you know, if you fight for one very quickly, you see it getting pit against each other. Um, so one place you see this is uh, in uh, construction and housing development. So uh, one, uh, this is a new article that we just uh, came out with at Workday Magazine, um, is that this idea that, oh, if you want affordable housing, it's going to have to be on the backs of construction workers and we're going to have to just underpay or not go union or have these, you know, unfair labor practices or, you know, sub minimum wage, whatever the case may be. So by uniting these causes um, and at least having that shared analysis, um, there's, you know, less room to pit these movements against each other. Um, you know, we also see that with the environment and worker protections. We see that with schools and jobs, um, you know, when teachers go on strike, teachers are seen as, you know, uh, hurting the school or whatever the case may be. So really trying to get ahead of that and uh, sort of make sure that these movements and these different fights aren't being put pit against each other. Um, and, you know, a lot of these movements, I would say a lot of these different unions have uh, specific ways that that is um, impacting them. Yeah. Can you can you talk about some of those specific ways with with uh, one or two of those groups of workers? Yeah, I can talk about um, the teachers, um, some things that they are fighting for, you know, pay increases, um, full service community schools better mental health support, um, a commitment um, to strong schools and ending a decline in enrollment that they've seen. Um, teachers have also been organizing outside of that for green technology in their schools, solarization and electric buses. Um, we know too that like a lot of times, um, you know, the Minnesotans have been also experiencing the effects of climate change, including record snowfall, drought, poor air quality, and temperatures so high that, you know, the Twin Cities Marathon has to be canceled. Um, and, you know, we we deal with a lot of snow days here in Minnesota, but um, when it's too hot, you know, kids can't, kids and teachers and all sorts of school workers can't, um, you know, work in their, uh, you know, ideal conditions. And so it's unsafe for them there. Um, so that's something that teachers have been fighting for as well. Right, right. Have you been able to talk to any of these folks in Minnesota um, about the UAW's call for contract alignments? Are they, um, uh, you know, how do they feel about uh, uh, about his announcement? And are do you know if they are trying to, um, you know, if they're going to try to align their contracts with that May 1st, 2028. Um, yeah. Yeah. How, how have they reacted and, and are they going to try to follow that? Uh, Isabella. Question. I don't think we, 
I, at least I haven't personally spoken to any of these workers since that announcement. Um, mm. I will say that this ha you know event happened in early October. So in a way, Minnesota was a little bit ahead of the game in that uh, in that strategy. Um, I will also say too, you know, being in the Minnesota labor movement, I kind of assumed everybody was already doing this. And when I spoke to <laughs> other organizers outside of the state, I was like, oh, I thought like, this was what all the states were doing. And, you know, there are little hubs of cities or certain areas where there is this alignment. But I will just say I was really surprised that this wasn't, uh, you know, a just tactic everybody had been taking. Mm. So um, I can't speak to that exact date that the UAW put out. Um, but I do think that Minnesota's kind of already has that uh, strategy in the works. Well, that's great. Uh, I'm really excited to hear that, and uh, and and it is. Um, I, and some of the analysis uh, around his uh, around his call call to action, so to speak, uh, for May the first, 2028, has talked about how you know for a lot of unions, not only does it seem difficult for them to align their contract expiration with other unions, but even within their unions, it's and and like you said, that's kind of a. I have been really you know kind of flummoxed by some of the ran some of the random assortments of contract expirations that some unions have allowed themselves to be put in put into and i'm thinking specifically right now about the paper mills i don't know if y'all have very many paper mills up in minnesota but the um the united steel workers represents a lot of paper uh paper mill workers and they have at you know, the big companies like Westrock or International Paper, they have national master agreements um, and that, that you know, expire at one time. But the national master agreement isn't the one with the no strike clause. It's the local agreements with the no strike clause. And the local agreements all expire. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no coordination among the local agreements. It's all, you know, evenly spaced out over the four year term of the contract. It's crazy. And I don't know if y'all have any any reaction to that other than like, yeah, that's that is crazy. But it's it's really fr it's been really frustrating to me talking to a lot of paper industry workers and feeling their frustration ab about, you know, especially seeing how Teamsters and the UAW been able to leverage their, you know, uh, leverage what they have in their industries and it being so much more difficult in the paper industry. I mean, that really speaks to the value of of this goal of contract alignment. Totally. I think, you know, just kind of a general reaction to that is I think that's intentional, you know, making mm -hmm. sure that these contracts are not aligned is, you know, in part intentional. I mean, I can't speak to all the uh, uh, intricacies of labor law, but you know that you also can't, you know, strike on behalf of someone else, you can't have secondary strikes. So that in a way, you know, plays into like, oh, you guys, you know, can't align. Well, that's not true. You can align in some ways. Of course, being mindful of those kind of legal parameters, especially if we're talking, you know, traditional unions. But, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that these things are divided. Um, also, something we didn't explicitly say either, but another kind of contingent here is worker centers. So right. worker centers aren't under the same kind of legal restrictions or, uh, you know, bargaining and, and expiration dates. But something we are seeing in the Twin Cities right now is, you know, non-union construction workers who are organizing with worker centers or rideshare drivers. You know, these are also other groups who have historically not been union, have been sort of excluded from uh, traditional bargaining. Um, 
But instead, you know, by organizing these in these other forms, they're also able to kind of take advantage of this shared expiration date to do other types of actions to align um, their, you know, either like events or uh, calls for legislation or uh, protests, whatever it may be, uh, with this kind of early uh, spring uh, timeline that a lot of the unions are because, you know, unions and non-union workers also have been, you know, historically pit against each other. So I would also wanted to just uh, make sure we spoke to that, uh, you know, part of it too, is that worker centers and uh, not traditionally organized labor is also a part of this. Right, right. Well, um, uh, Amy, Isabella, I really appreciate your time and, and the work that you're doing uh, for Workday Magazine. Uh, Workday Magazine is a really cool thing that y'all have over there. Um, I've talked to Sarah about it, uh, and I'm incredibly jealous of <laughs> what y'all have over there. Um, but uh, um, uh, could you, uh, I, I guess, make a pitch for make make a pitch for Workday Magazine? What is it that y'all do uh, o over there, and um, uh, what what kind of stuff can people find? Yeah, so Workday Magazine is, um, we're based in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, but we've recently, um, within the past year, expanded our coverage um, towards a broader Midwest and even national and international issues. Um, we've written about, you know, the intersections of the labor movement um, when it comes to climate and militarism. Um, our uh, editor, Sarah Lazar, has been a very important part of this uh, transition, and um, I love getting to work with her and um, and Issa as well. They both bring um, such a wealth of um, knowledge and experience to um, what's going on in the labor movement right now and always surprise me with how um, ahead of um, the game they are. So, Yeah. Uh, well, Amy, Isabella, appreciate your time. Um, is there anything else that you want to make sure you leave folks with before we let you go? Yeah, I just want to, you know, shout out to the workers and unions who are celebrating and building off um, the momentum of the past year's wins in Minnesota, um, which include a lot of legislative wins like um, the establishment of a nursing home workforce standards board here, driver's licenses for all, um, free breakfast and lunch for students across the state. Um, you know, it's it's been a very, very wonderful thing to observe and experience and kind of get like a front row seat to see. So, um, yeah, we're very excited to uh, be on this, on top of this story and hopefully uh, more and more people will read about it and learn from them. Yeah, I'll just add that Minnesota is a state to watch. I think that seeing that, you know, a lot of Minnesota unions uh have been kind of aligning and strategizing in this really, uh, you know, exciting and unique way. Um, yeah, Minnesota is a place to watch. So uh, just hopefully follow our coverage of this as it progresses in uh, early 2024. All right, will do. Y'all have a good one. Thanks for your time. All right, folks. Uh, yeah, Isabella Escalona, Amy Stagger. Uh, definitely check out their work. In um, uh, that was dual published by Workday Magazine and In These Times, so definitely check it out. They do good stuff. Um, and uh, I think we got the sound issue figured out, so good deal. Um, 
And uh, so let's talk about this this ceasefire stuff with the UAW. This is a really, really big deal. Um, the UAW International Union um, has become the latest and largest union to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Um, and this is, is really, I think, kind of uh, representative of a sea change in the labor movement um, because, unfortunately, the labor movement has really been, um, you know, on the side of um, Israeli militarism uh, against Palestinian and against the cause uh, of freedom and justice for Palestinians. And, um, and and it's been kind of a black mark on on our movement for a while. And I think the tide is, is starting to turn. And so here's the specific, like the words of the resolution that they signed on to that was began by UE, the United Electrical Workers Union. We, members of the American labor movement, mourn the loss of life in Israel and Palestine. We express our solidarity with all workers and our common desire for peace in Palestine and Israel. And we call on President Joe Biden and Congress to push for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the siege of Gaza. We cannot bomb our way to peace. We also condemn any hate crimes against Muslims, Jews, or anyone else. In issuing this call, U.S. unions are joining the efforts of 13 Congress members and others who are calling for an immediate ceasefire. The basic rights of people must be restored. Water, fuel, food, and other humanitarian aid must be allowed into Gaza. Power must be restored, and foreign nationals and Palestinians requiring medical care must be allowed out of Gaza. The Israeli hostages taken by Hamas must be immediately released. Both Hamas and Israel must adhere to standards of international law and Geneva Convention rules of warfare concerning the welfare and security of civilians. There must be a ceasefire in Gaza. The cycle of violence must stop so that negotiations for an enduring peace can proceed. The U.S. must act. We call on President Biden to immediately call for a ceasefire. The road to justice cannot be paved by bombs and war. The road to peace cannot be found through warfare. We commit ourselves to work in solidarity with the Palestinian and Israeli peoples to achieve peace and justice. Union members come from diverse backgrounds, including Jews, Muslims, and Middle Eastern communities. The rising escalation of war and arms sales doesn't serve the interests of workers anywhere. In the end, we all want a place to call home and for our children to be safe. Working people around the world want and deserve to live free from the effects of violence, war, and militarization. Thousands of Americans have joined the groundswell of global solidarity depending on us demanding a ceasefire now. It's the labor movement's turn to make our voices heard and demand a ceasefire. Together, we can stand for peace, justice, and a better future for working people everywhere. Please sign this call and add your name to a growing list calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, so a very important statement and, and very important that uh, the UAW has signed on. Um, I, I think it's the right thing to do uh, morally, um, and I think it makes sense politically. They announced it at a news conference with other union members and activists in D.C. just yesterday on Friday. 
Um, and Cynthia Nixon was there, a 45-year member of SAG-AFTRA, um, former gubernatorial candidate in New York State. Uh, she spoke at the press conference on Friday and says that unions are about solidarity. Unions are about groups of people with less power and less rights coming together to challenge a more powerful, wealthier, more connected entity about the little guy standing up to the big guy and demanding justice, fairness, and humane treatment. And that is certainly what we are seeing the Palestinian people do as they implore the bombing to stop. So um, there was uh, there was also a recent piece in Jewish Currents by Jeff Shirky um, from In These Times, but he wrote this for Jewish Currents. Uh, the problem of the unionized war machine. And there was a lot of really, really good stuff about how, you know, much like with climate change, you know, and the issue of um, the issue of having so many union members in um, fossil fuel industries, you know, that presents an impediment to uh, transition. And so, you know, we have to figure out a way to reconcile these differences when we're because the it is a necessity to move away from fossil fuels. Um, and so we have to figure out how to uh, um, speak to the concerns, the valid concerns of people in fossil fuel industries and the way that has been you know, uh, put forward for decades. You know, I think the person who t t uh, who coined the term just transition was um, the president of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union. Oh, shoot. What was his name? The man who, this is his biography, the man who hated work and loved Labor. Let's see if I can find his name. Tony Mazaki. That's right. It was on the tip of my tongue. Tony Mazaki. I think he was the term. He was the one that coined the term "just transition." And basically, you know, it sounds a lot like what it sounds. You know, it, it is what it sounds like. It is a transition from a fossil fuel economy, from fossil fuel jobs to clean energy jobs. But it is just because we have seen. So many transitions, especially over the course of the last 50 years, that have not been just. Deindustrialization, de the outsourcing of American jobs, uh, the absolute destruction of our manufacturing communities. It has not been just because these people who have had these jobs have gone from being solidly middle class, being able to work and make a living oftentimes only on one income to now not having that job and having to work a much lower paying job, sometimes in the same industry for about half as much, you know, working at a non-union manufacturing facility or working in a not manufacturing industry having to work in the service industry where you make even less than half what you used to make, right? If you used to make $40, $50, an hour at a union manufacturing job, and now you're making 15 an hour sometimes working in a restaurant, if that, right? This is an incredibly, you know, that ha that is the example. And that is why so many in the fossil fuel industry are, you know, reluctant <laughs> when they hear these calls, uh, reasonably so. They're reluctant to go along with 
you know, this clean energy stuff because they've seen transitions in the past completely fuck them over, right? And so it's not unreasonable to say, well, why the hell would I trust you, government, industry, society, to transition me in a way that that is just and fair and makes sense, right? And so you have to do a lot of work and you have to actually do the just transition. You have to actually create good paying union jobs in the clean energy economy. And so the same problem exists in the war industry, right? Because I I just talked about how the idea that the war industry creates good paying jobs is something of a, like, uh, is to a certain extent not true because so much of this money has gone to the top. 73% more is going to shareholders in the defense industry now than in 2010. Uh, less money is being spent on research and development. Uh, and as all of these companies continue to get more and more and more money from the U.S. government, they are actually increasingly cutting American jobs. Uh, and so, you know, the argument that spending more on the military is good for jobs in the American economy. We've talked about how that is not a persuasive argument, but that doesn't do anything for the unionized war machine workers who do have good jobs because there are good paying union jobs in the war machine, right? And that's just, that is a reality that we have to deal with. And so, in the same way that fossil fuel workers look at what has happened to auto workers and say, there is no way that I'm going to want to follow that. That's crazy. Why would I sign on to that? War machine workers are not unreasonably so saying, what could I do for a job if we stop spending so much money on defense? I have to have the war machine to feed my family. And that's morally, you know, not really a, a you know that's not a great uh argument but it is one that must be dealt with societally practically right it doesn't matter how we think morally about that right the fact is the problem exists and we must do something about it if we are going to transition to a peace economy to an economy that can and does thrive on peace to a world where we don't have to, uh, you know, where, where people don't have to depend on their incomes uh, on war and violence and where people don't have to experience war and violence and militarization and all of this kind of stuff, right? So uh, we have to have a just transition for the uh, for uh, uh, the workers in the military industrial complex. And this has been... Just like the fossil fuel industry, this has been something that um, workers, uh, uh, that, that union leaders have been thinking about for a long time. And, and it's not to say that it's been a popular, you know, the idea of a just transition to a peace economy has not been the mainstream position in the labor movement, unfortunately. But it has had high level adherence. And so one of those adherents was Walter Ruther. And uh, Jeff Shirky talks about this in Jewish Currents. So I'm reading from this article, The Problem of the Unionized War Machine by Jeff Shirky in Jewish Currents. 
recognizing that speedily ending the fighting in Southeast Asia, the Vietnam War, would have economic ramifications within the U.S., Ruther agreed, argued in 1969 that the weapons contractors who then employed 3.8 million workers, tens of thousands of thousands of whom were UAW members, should be required to avert layoffs by converting their operations to civilian production. The anvil on which peace is hammered out, he said, should not be on the heads and backs of displaced defense workers and their families. And that's exact, I mean, that's, I mean, such a great quote. And it can't be if we're going to actually do this because we need their support. We need the support of the labor movement and the support of the labor movement is going to largely depend on convincing these people who work in these industries that this needs to happen. So the anvil on which peace is hammered out should not be on the heads and backs of displaced workers and their families. So to make this possible, Ruther called on Congress to pass legislation requiring weapons manufacturers to put 25% of their after-tax profits into a federally managed conversion fund, which would be used to pay for retraining and family benefits for workers during a period of economic adjustment. The idea was in many ways a precursor to later calls from unionists and fossil fuel-related industries for a just transition to green energy jobs. Uh, another popular and powerful labor leader was William uh, Wimpissinger, who was uh, at one point the international president of the international, uh, the general president of the International Association of Machinists. Uh, he was one of the most left-wing and anti-war labor leaders of the Cold War era, interestingly enough, uh, because the machinist union represents more workers in the defense industry than any other union in the country. So as an official in the Machinist Union, the union representing the largest number of weapons industry workers in the U.S., Wimpissinger took a principled stance in favor of conversion, saying that he, quote, would hate to think that the members of our union who are now engaged in the many facets of military production would have to depend forever on world terror in order to survive as an economic unit. After becoming the Machinist Union president in 1977, Winpassinger put his principles in action by ending the union's cooperation with weapons industry lobbyists trying to push arms deals through Congress. Unless and until, he said, our country breaks the vicious cycle that seems to chain us to a wartime economy, we are forever going to be prisoners of defense appropriations bills in Congress. In 1978, Wimpissinger went further, vocally, though unsuccessfully, opposing a U.S. plan to sell F-15 fighter jets to Israel, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, even though the planes were to be produced by Machinist Union members at a Pratt & Whitney factory in Connecticut. I mean, that's a very difficult thing for a labor leader to do, right? And after reading this article, I, I'm going to have to read more about Wimpissinger because he sounds like a, a very, very interesting figure. Very, uh, um... A very good guy. So this is him being quoted again. The obvious result of the sales would be to heighten tensions in the region. We need peace, not profits. Such anti-war advocacy often ran into resistance from skeptical Machinist Union members and staff, but Winpissinger was resolute. Quote, sometimes self-interest has to take a backseat to what's right, especially if the choice is between a layoff and a death. So I think very powerful argument from Wimpissinger and very practical solutions presented by both Walter Ruther and William Wimpissinger, the UAW and Machinist Union's presidents, respectively, during the 60s and 70s.
Well, Jacob, they have the same kind of argument about transitioning from fossil fuels to like green energy, where mm -hmm. it's like you're going to destroy all these jobs. But with green energy, you need infrastructure. If you're going to build nuclear plants, you need yep. thousands of hectares of concrete. You need people to maintain this stuff. It's not right. like uh, changing industries uh, means you'll even have a net loss in jobs right. in the long run. Um, things like the New Deal and with the... Uh, building some of the infrastructure we still use around here. Uh, I mean, that was incredible amounts of jobs were created for that. Yeah. And and the, the thing is, is to make them good jobs, right? Because, and there was just recently a report from Alabama Arise about the auto industry in Alabama and how it has fallen short of a lot of the promises that the auto industry made to the government of Alabama as we shovel hundreds of millions of dollars into their pockets. Um, but... And that's the reason that people are skeptical of any sort of transition is because we have seen these transitions to bad paying, mm -hmm. bottom of the, uh, you know, low road, bottom of the barrel jobs with low wages, bad working conditions, unsafe working conditions, disrespect on the job, tyrannical corporations. Um, and so we have to make them good paying jobs. We have to make them union jobs and we have to have the government um, do like it did during World War II. And hold these companies to account and to certain standards, labor standards, and all of this kind of stuff to do an actual just transition in both uh, for both the defense industry and the fossil fuel industry. So anyway, uh, that's a incredibly, incredibly consequential move from the UAW to endorse a ceasefire in Gaza. Very appreciated, and um, looking forward to uh, continuing to watch these developments. Okay, so um, here's another thing that happened last week. Uh, Walter Ruther in the chat says, thanks for the shout out. <laughs> uh, so here's another thing that's happened last week. Uh, Elon Musk was interviewed and, you know, he talked, you know, this is just so, I don't know. Well, let's start off by and this is how the interview started off too actually that's also how i feel about elon musk by the way yeah yeah right that's the, uh, that's the appropriate way to feel about uh, elon musk um but uh, the interview started off you know really by illustrating <laughs> the superiority of our betters how much smarter and more intelligent and brilliant they are and really you know just underlining why uh, you know, why working people cannot be trusted to run the economy. We cannot be trusted to run our lives. We have to have better people than us, economic royalists, if you will, to run our uh, affairs geniuses for us. Even. We have geniuses. to have geniuses, right? We have to have geniuses to run our affairs for us like Elon Musk. And that's why it is such a good thing that he has so much power as a single individual. He illustrated that when they started the interview. And, and Jonathan, like, the only reason I'm here is because you are a friend. Like, what was my speaking fee? You're not making was, any... First exactly. of all, I'm Andrew, but... Uh, yeah, sorry. It's okay. Uh, second of all, we've known <laughs> each other for a very long time. I'm spoken. Um, uh, yes. And... Um, <laughs> Listen. You know... <laughs> He's trying to grab it back, too. Um, Listen. What I'm trying to illustrate is that sometimes I say the wrong thing. And, and Jonathan, like, the only reason I'm here is... Okay, that's it. Okay. Uh, also illustrating that um, they have uh, insane laughs, too. That's another thing that he illustrated. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so there you go. You know, there are betters, obviously. They should be running society. They should have no checks on them, all that. Um, you know, they talked a lot about stuff, uh, said a lot of really silly things, pontificating about the meaning of life, digital God, you know, all this kind of stuff, and, and you know, really smelling his own fart in a lot in a lot of this conversation um that uh other people have talked about endlessly you know i think the the big moment was the go f yourself moment that's what a lot of people mm. um you know uh hung on to which is another a classic system for getting more advertisers yeah yeah super yeah. antagonize I mean, just, them in the press <laughs> yeah can, i mean just continuing to illustrate how much better Elon Musk is at running the affairs of working people than working people would be uh, by telling the people who make the operation of the company that he runs possible to go F themselves. So, you know, just a really intelligent guy. And it's it's great that he has so much power and that his words uh, mean so much. But people have already talked about that. I don't really have anything else to say about that other than what's been said and what's been said better than I could say it. But not very many people kind of surprisingly have uh, um, uh, reacted or or analyzed or commented on another part of this interview where he uh, talked about how he felt about unions and it was very uh, revealing. So let's let's play this clip. How worried are you that the, that the unionization effort that just took place uh, at, well, not, I shouldn't say effort, but the, 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 new, the, the new wages and the like at GM and Ford, are, that they're coming for you? And they are coming for you. What is that going to mean to you and your business? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's generally not good to have an adversarial relationship uh, between um, people online, you know, one group at the company and another group. In fact, I mean, I, I, I disagree with the idea of unions, but perhaps for a reason that is different than people may expect, which is I, I just don't like anything which creates kind of a lords and peasants sort of thing. And, and I think the unions naturally try to create negativity in a company and, and create a sort of lords and peasants uh, situation. Uh, there, there are many people at Tesla who have come, gone from working on the line to being in senior management. There is no lords and peasants. Everyone eats at the same table. Everyone parks in the same parking lot. You know, at GM, there's a special elevator for only for senior executives. Pause it. We have no such thing oh, at Tesla. Hold on. Just get um, There we go. Okay. And we can rewind it to, so we don't miss anything. But the, this is <laughs> so, so stupid. And, you know, look, people can really um, – the ability for – humans to deceive themselves is great and you know that's been studied and 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 people are capable of convincing themselves that untrue things are true right and so maybe because his livelihood and influence and power and all of this and and his ability to kind of sleep at night depends on what he's saying being true, maybe he believes it, but it's difficult for me to believe that it's not just a bald-faced lie because when you think about lords and peasants, what is the dynamic between lords and peasants that makes it objectionable, right? Just think about that for a second. Okay, lords and peasants, that's bad, has a bad connotation. Why is it that it has a bad connotation? What is it about the relationship between feudal lords and 
serfs, they're peasants that makes it objectionable to 21st century freedom-loving Americans. The dynamic that makes it objectionable is the amount of power of undisputable, indisputable, unquestionable, unchallengeable power that lords have over peasants. The ability of lords to dictate anything within their realm that they want. It is up to them and totally up to them whether and how much you will have land. It is up to them and totally up to them whether or which crop you will be able to grow. Up to them whether you can have anybody else living with you. Whether you can, everything within their realm, everything within their realm on their property is totally within their control and there is nothing the serfs can say about it. They have to either acquiesce to the demands of the Lord or flee the land and run away. So... I hope you can understand where I'm going with this because that is the that is the dynamic that exists in non-union shops, right? At Tesla, at Nissan, at Subaru, Toyota, Honda, Mazda, Hyundai, Mercedes-Benz, Volvo, all of these places, the dynamic is that these companies have total and complete dictatorial control over everything that happens within their realm of influence, within their factories. As a worker, when you, uh, uh, when you clock in for your shift, you clock out of your rights and, 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 and privileges and freedoms as an American citizen. You no longer have freedom of speech. You no longer have freedom of movement. You no longer have all of these, all of this kind of stuff. You are now a literally a subject at the beck and whim of the company. Without any recourse, without any negotiating power, none of that. It's completely, I mean, it is literally a serfs and peasant relationship. And that's the that's the objectionable thing is the power and the like the ability for the Lord to decide what happens to the serf. That is the exactly almost the power that companies have over non-union workers. And so the way that uh, and so union workplaces are actually much less lords and peasants. Dynamic. You could say it's authoritarian or anti-democratic yes. even. Yes, the dynamic that exists in non-union plants. And so uh, unions make these places more democratic and they lessen the power that the lords have over the serfs. Right. And, and, you know, then his example of, Oh, here's, you know, unions create a lords and peasants mentality. And then his first example of how unions do that is that GM has a special elevator for management. <laughs> that's not in the contract. That's, that's GM. That's not the union. For only the union management? Like, what? What? What is it's that? It's so that? stupid. <laughs> it's absurd. What a stupid thing to say. Uh, like, 
It's not the union's fault that GM management wants their own special elevator, <laughs> right? That's GM management's. Anyway, okay, let's continue. All right, here we go. Step it back just a little. Parks in the same parking lot. You know, at GM, there's a special elevator for only for senior executives. We have no such thing at Tesla. Um, All our elevators are normal elevators. Know, and the thing is, that I actually know the people <laughs> on the line because I worked on the line and I walked the line and I slept in the factory and I and I worked beside them. So I'm no stranger to them. Um, and there actually many times where I've said, well, can't we just hold a union vote? But apparently a company is not allowed to hold a union vote. So it has to be somehow called for, but the unions can't do it. So I said, well, let's just hold a vote and see what happens. Um, um, the, the actual problem is the, is, is the opposite. It's not that people are trapped at Tesla building cars. The, 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 tra the challenge is, is how do we retain great people to do the hard work of building cars when they have like six other opportunities that they can do that are easier. That's the actual difficulty, is, is that building cars is hard work and, and, and there are much easier jobs. And I just want to say that I'm incredibly appreciative of those who build cars and they know it. Um, the, you know, so there, there's, there's, I don't know, maybe there will be unionized. I say, like, if Tesla gets unionized, it will be because we deserve it and we failed in some way. Um, but we, we, we certainly try hard to, you know, ensure the prosperity of everyone. Yeah, so there you go. And so, look, you know, if you uh, hear what um, Elon Musk says, he's like, I'd love to have a union vote. I have no problems with the union. And look, if they do it, then we've done something wrong. Hold a union vote today. I don't care. It's not, uh, you know, it's not uh, no skin off my nose, but my employees just love me so much they don't want a union. Oh, wow. Right? Uh, that's what um, that's what he says right now. And this is the thing about these, one of the things about these, these uh, you know, these interviews that I hate. They drive me up the wall because... Um, he like has a record on this that Andrew Ross Sorkin could have asked him about, and he didn't. This is all stuff that is very public record, and he not he knows about it. Andrew does because he has followed Elon Musk and he's followed all of this, and there's no shot that he doesn't know about the union efforts at Tesla over the years and Tesla's reaction to them. And so you know. A journalist with an interest in the truth and challenging power and not, you know, stroking his ego would ask him about the following. Let's play this. And they told me that based on my previous performance, that I was not meeting expectation for, like, the current, um, I've been saying it so much, now I can't, pro what? Acceleration. Oh my goodness. Performance acceleration. I've been saying it so much and I just lost it. Um, and I was really confused by that. I'm like, my last review was great. I mean, I got a promotion from a level one labeler to a level two labeler. I got a raise to go along with the new promotion. And I got a, like another raise just for having a good performance like you know the it's like a, the metric bonus or whatever so i didn't understand it 
And I, I, I was crying and I'm just like, why? Like, this doesn't make sense. I didn't even get a chance to clear off my own desk and that's how they were doing it throughout the day. They would take an employee and as soon as that employee was out of the room, they start clearing off the desk. My name was on the committee letter that went out on Tuesday. And Wednesday, I lost my job. I spoke to a lot of people across the plant. By the time they fired me, I had people ready and willing to walk out if we said to. And they fired me because I tried to improve the lives of my coworkers and myself. That's why they fired me. Because it wasn't a part of Elon's plan. So it is not as if working people have not tried to hold a union vote at uh, Elon Musk's factories. He has, in every step of the way, been antagonistic towards uh, and punishing of employees who engage in this. And in fact, that person that uh, you just heard from, Richard Ortiz, he was fired in 2017 by Elon Musk for his union activities. The NLRB at the time held that this was illegal retaliation for his union activities. And it was actually only a few months ago upheld by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. I don't know how much you know about the appeals courts in the United States, but the Fifth Circuit is literally the single most conservative Trump appointee filled court in the country. The Fifth Circuit. It's like off the rails. And that circuit, uh, that, that appeals court upheld. Like, Elon Musk's retaliation against Richard Ortiz was so obvious and so blatantly illegal that the court with the single highest percentage of Trump appointees in the country said so. That this is illegal. You have to hire Richard Ortiz again and you have to pay him back wages. That is how blatant his illegal activity was. Additionally, around the same time period, he said, he tweeted this out. He said, quote, nothing stopping Tesla team at our car plant from voting union. Could do so tomorrow if they wanted, but why pay union dues and give up stock options for nothing? He was sanctioned by the NLRB again uh, for that time, and the California judge agreed, saying in part that it can only be read by a reasonable employee to indicate that if employees vote to unionize, they would give up stock options. I mean, what is it that's creating the lords and peasants dynamic? It is this kind of without, uh, uh, without justification, without the need for justification or negotiation, the ability to take away stock options from people because they want a collective voice on the job, right? That is how he has re reacted to uh, union uh, union campaigns in the past. And in fact, right now, right now, he has a case that, this, that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, agreed with him on that is probably going to be taken up by the Supreme Court that could very well overturn nearly 100 years of Supreme Court precedent around the National Labor Relations Act. That being that workers have the federally protected right to engage in collective concerted activity, including the wearing of union merchandise on the job 
as a free speech protection and as a protection on the job that you get um because that is a that is a collective effort and and that kind of thing should be protected he not only banned employees from handing out materials that were not pre-approved by tesla he banned leafleting that's also illegal after employees began to wear shirts with union insignias to work, the company instituted a restrictive dress code that prohibited unapproved pants and shirts. And so this case, the Supreme Court, uh, the, the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has said, yes, we are fine with overturning 100 years of Supreme Court precedent and saying that your boss should be able to dictate um, that you cannot wear union merchandise to work and show your support for uh, a union at work. We agree that you should not have that freedom at work. Your boss should be able to take away that freedom from you at work whenever he wants, if you don't have a union. And that's the kind of, that is what Elon Musk is doing right now. And that's the kind of thing that Andrew should have asked him about. Okay, you're saying, I would be fine if the UAW held a vote at my plants tomorrow. Well, why don't you let them wear UAW shirts on the line? Right? But that's not something that Andrew asked. And it for the life of me, I, I don't understand it. It's incredibly frustrating. So, so there you go. That was Elon Musk's words on unions versus Elon Musk's record on unions. And they could not be more different. <clears throat> okay oh yeah and i'll, I'll go on record because a commenter I, I was not saying elon musk is a genius i was joking oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. at the very idea yeah. <laughs> all right uh goodness goodness. goodness gracious okay so uh here's the last thing that we're going to talk about this is the um the um new department of labor rule about overtime um exemptions Okay, so the standard is that um, you have the the rights, and your employer must pay you over forty. Uh, 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 it must pay you time and a half if you work over forty hours in a week. Okay, that's kind of the standard. But then there are exemptions from that, and so one of those exemptions is the uh, um, the the professional employee exemption. And it's basically that, you know, look, if you have job duties that are kind of related to, you have all, all this, um, you know, independent authority, you have a certain amount of independent authority to manage the administration of the business and you're on salary, meaning you get the same amount of pay every every two weeks, same amount of pay regardless of how many hours you work, theoretically whether you go above or below 40 uh, uh, whether you go above or below this number that I'm about to tell you um or no whether whether you go above or below 40 hours in a work week you get the same amount of the same amount of money but it, if you ever talk to anybody on salary they'll tell you that uh they never work less than 40 hours a work week it's always more than 40 hours in a work week but you know that's not something that they, they'll tell you at, at the beginning of the job um and so that's one of the ways that they get away from overtime is they say, look, you know, this is a special kind of employee and they're on salary, so we don't have to pay them overtime. And that's in the law. Um, and so 
but one of the uh, another restriction on that exemption, one of the restrictions on that exemption is the 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 salary must be right now over thirty five thousand five hundred sixty eight dollars a year. Right. So if you are an employee under thirty five thousand dollars a year. You and you you make less than that per year. You cannot be exempt from overtime laws. That's not legal. It doesn't matter what you do at your job. If you're employed and you make less than thirty five thousand a year, you're entitled to overtime, and they must give it to you. But if you make over thirty five thousand five hundred sixty eight dollars in a year and you meet all of these job descriptions, then they can then then you can be theoretically exempt from overtime. You don't have to be, right? I make you know significantly more than $35,000 a year, uh, but I'm an hourly employee. I get paid by the hour, so if I work over 40 hours in a work week, then uh, I get overtime. Uh, if I work less than 40 hours in a work week and I, don't take, um, and I don't take any accrued leave, then I don't get paid, right? I'm an hourly employee. Okay, so the Department of Labor is seeking to change that um, salary threshold from $35,000 a year to $55,068 a year. So they're dramatically increasing this salary threshold. Um, and so once this rule goes into effect, then if you make under $55,000 in a year, no matter what your job duties are, you have to be paid overtime if you work 40 hours in a work week. You cannot be exempt. So... Um, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of business groups are really up in arms about this. And so there was a hearing on this in the United States House of Representatives, which is controlled by the Republicans. Um, and they had a hearing about this and saying, oh, this is so scary. So scary. Um, and so my stocks are quaking. Yeah. <laughs> my stock options. And, you know. The overtime rules are, are meant to discourage overtime. Like it's, uh, you know, in addition to giving the employees who work overtime rules, uh, or who work overtime a premium for their efforts, it's also meant to, you know, part of it is meant to be a punishment to the employer, to the boss, right? Because you should not be, as an employer, routinely working your employees over 40 hours in a work week. So, you know, you have to pay this penalty, right? And so that that's one of the uh, that, that's one of the reasons for these regulations is to punish employers. And one of the guests uh, of the hearing for the Democrats explained why that's important by explaining the effects of overtime on employees. And make no mistake about it, excessive overtime is dangerous for workers, leading to cardiovascular disease, stress, depression, increased alcohol and tobacco use, and mental health issues. It can also lead to increased absenteeism, low productivity, low morale, and higher turnover, all of which are significant costs to employers and make their workplaces less attractive to their current workforce for potential job candidates. And make no mistake. So um, there you go. And it's obvious, you know, I, I think everybody has worked more than 40 hours in a work week at some point in their life. And you recognize that sucks ass, right? That is not fun. And so you can imagine if you're subjected to that uh, week in and week out, that it's going to be de detrimental to your health in a variety of ways. And so this is the group of workers that we're talking about in this hearing. The, the group of workers that works so much that they work over 40 hours in a work week. 
That's the only people implicated by this discussion, right? And so uh, because that's the subject of this hearing, it is clear that um, Representative Virginia Fox does not know where she is because this was her opening remarks. Unfortunately, um, uh, what Ms. Conti was talking about is there's just a lot of people in this country don't want to work, period, and want somebody else to take care of them. And uh, that's not what this country's all about. Uh, what we need, we have great opportunities in this country for people to be successful if they want to work hard. <laughs> that's absurd. How stupid. Like we're in Don't want to like, work over 40 hours. Like, yeah, what, are you, like what are we talking which about? Which room was she in? We're not in a hearing about <laughs> unemployment benefits. We're in a hearing about to, you know, about overtime. They don't want to do 712s, Jacob, okay? That means they, they're lazy. Yeah, it's insane. It, for under 55 grand a year. So, it's it's Jeez. bonkers, you know, in the context of the discussion that we're having because the discussion is only relevant to people who work over 40 hours in a work week, okay? So, you know, this is just a silly thing, but it's also a silly thing in general. People say this a lot, even though it's a lot. Totally <laughs> nonsense because look at this. Prime Working age labor force participation rate. Okay? Google that. Google that. Okay? The prime age, uh, the prime working age is 25 to 54. Currently, the prime working age labor force participation rate is about 83.5. Three, four, or five percent. Eighty-three point something percent, give or take. <laughs> that means that more than eight in ten people who are working age are in the formal economy, right? These are people that the government is tracking. Over the board, yeah. This is not, you know, this is not like mothers taking care of their children. This is people who are getting a paycheck every week. Eighty-three point something percent. There have only been, in the history of the country, like six years where more prime age working people are working. Only six years. In the entire history of the country, since 1776, there has only been like six years where we have had more prime working age people in the workforce. So this is just such a silly, silly thing to go around saying because it is so unreflective of reality as to be absurd. And those six were like in the 90s or something, which is, you know, historically not a great time. The 90s, right? How old is Virginia Fox? Let's Google that. For a second. <laughs> we got to figure Virginia out where this came Fox from. Virginia Fox age. Let's see what the... Okay, she's 80 years old. She was born in 1943. That means she was 25 in 1968. Okay, let's see what the prime working age labor force participation rate was in 1968. 71%. 71%, a full... 15 per, or a full 11, 12 percentage points less than it is today. 
Those lazy, those lazy non-working. And, and that's what, and that's also part of the argument is that like people Go don't want to work today. People don't want to work today. Today, people don't want to work as compared to presumably when I was prime working age back in the '60s, when only seventy percent of prime working age people were in the workforce. It's just insane. It's so disconnected from reality that it makes. I, I just, I go into a rage. I, I don't understand how people can say this because it's so unreflective of reality. Okay, so now there were some other people who did not, you know, just kind of walk out of the nursing home and like, where am I? I don't know what's going on, right? There were, there were some people that knew where they were and that did make arguments. I did not find them, um, I did not find them persuasive, but let's listen to them. Let's, you know, I'm, I'm nothing if not fair and I'll hear people out, right? So... Let's listen to one of the first arguments from the uh, Republican side of the aisle as to why this uh, new rule would be bad. First, the proposed rule rejects 85 years of Department of Labor practice and would transform the salary threshold into a completely unprecedented regulatory device. Since 1940, the department's regulations have consistently embodied the principle that the purpose of the salary threshold is to screen out obviously non-exempt employees. Weeding out those individuals avoids the department, employers, and workers wasting time analyzing job duties of employees whose pay is so low that there is little chance that they would satisfy the duties test for exemption. The department has repeatedly cautioned that the salary level must not be so high as to exclude a substantial number of workers. Yet the proposed rule acknowledges that it would deny exempt status to at least 3.4 million workers whose duties qualify for exemption today. And the department admits in a footnote that the real salary threshold it intends to put into the final rule is quite a bit higher than the already high level stated in the proposal. In short, the proposed threshold of more than $55,000 per year would, for the first time in the nearly century-long history of the FLSA, transform the salary threshold into an entirely new regulatory tool, one that operates to deny exempt status to millions of workers whose job duties qualify for exemption. Wow. Wow, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy. This guy is claiming that the salary threshold would be so numerically high as to completely alter the uh, the name of the game, so to speak, right? It's creating a completely new regulatory burden, doing something that's never been done before because this new th salary threshold is so high, right? This is totally... Um, this is just brand new. Never happened before. This is so, uh, uh, you know, out of, uh, you know, out of line with everything else that's come before it. Um, so, you know, you hear that first and you're thinking, okay, well, well, maybe I agree with the, with the regulation, but that's something I want to think about, right? Is, is, is this such a, a big, uh, departure from, you know, historic trends? That's kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's something that we want to, we want to chew on for a little bit, Right. Uh, and so one of the guests that the Democrats brought, uh, they, they chewed on that. And, uh, and, and here's, here's their response to that argument. By raising the salary threshold to $55,068 per year, DOL will provide new and enhanced protections for approximately 3.6 million people who are now working more than 40 hours per week for free. By historical standards, this is actually a rather modest threshold. In 1975, 63% of full-time salaried workers were covered by overtime protections, regardless of their duties. Today, that share is a mere 9%. 
Had the relevant 1974 salary threshold for the current duties test merely been inflated, uh, updated for inflation, it would stand at nearly 68000 per year. <laughs> I mean, this is the, like, this is every, any time you hear an anti-worker politician or think tank freak or employer say something that makes it sound like their arguments are reasonable that maybe the workers are asking for too much or maybe this, you know, pro-worker thing is not actually so good. You just never believe it because it's always almost bullshit, right? I mean, this, can you imagine being so... Ha having the gall to know... There's no way that he doesn't know that. There's no way that he does not know that the $55,000 threshold is actually historically modest. And he's out here making the claim that this is this is uh, the opposite of that. It is it is historically immodest. It is it is making history because of how high it is. I mean, just a lie, literally a lie. This guy. Okay. So, first argument, not super persuasive because it's a lie. So you know, look, if you're not telling the truth, it's difficult to be persuaded. If you if if someone knows the truth and you're not telling the truth, you know, not going to be very persuasive. Okay, so here's another here's another argument, and this argument comes from the employer, uh, the owner of a bunch of hotels, right? And so this is a uh, you know, hotel industry is um, you know, extremely. Uh, is is known for nothing if not its good treatment of employees, right? And so I'm sure that mm. she's she's gonna have a she's gonna have a good argument. Let's listen to that. I'm here today to explain my perspective as a small business owner and a hotel operator, and to describe how the Department of Labor's proposed changes to the overtime rule will have devastating effects on my business, my employees, and the lodging industry. It is critical to note that the proposal does not simply increase salaries for few employees at a marginal level, rather an up to 70% increase will drastically impact the entire business plan while beyond compensation. We expect not only a significant jump in direct staffing costs, but also substantial increases in associated labor costs, including payroll taxes, federal and state unemployment taxes, insurance, and none of which seems to be included in much of the discussion. In order to handle these increases, employers will be forced to take actions that we do not want to take, including actions that could set workers back in their careers. The last thing small business owner wants to do is to lay off their employees. Unfortunately, some hotels may be forced to do so because of this new rule in order to stay in business. So if you feel like really slimy after listening to that, uh, you're not alone, I did too. Because think about like the ramifications of what she's saying. If it's true, think about if it's just to just grant her the benefit of the doubt that it's true. Because in, in all actuality, probably, probably also a lie, right? Because this is always the argument against anything that would benefit workers. Unions, minimum wage, safety regulations, all of this stuff going to kill jobs, going to shut down employers. And in fact, we saw exactly the opposite of that happen with the recent UAW contracts where they have uh, not only gotten all these raises and all this stuff for their members, but they have also gotten the companies to commit to reopen plants that had been idled and to build new plants in the future, right? So probably, probably it's a lie what she's saying, but let's take it at face value and say she's not lying. What does that mean? If she's not lying, 
What she is telling us is that she utilizes so much overtime labor from people who make less than $26 an hour, which is about what the threshold is, right? $55,000 a year is about 26 bucks an hour. She utilizes so much labor over 40 hours in a work week from people who make less than $26 an hour that it could drastically affect her entire business plan and cause her hotels to close. That's bonkers, right? How could that even possibly be the case? There's, I mean, right? You can only possibly work somebody, you know, 80 hours in a work week, 100 hours in a work, you know, there's only so many hours in a week, right, that are even available. And then you got to sleep, you got to go home, right? It's just difficult to imagine that that's even possible, that that could be the case. But if it is, think about what that means for the people she is exploiting, right? It's a real lords and peasants kind of conundrum. <laughs> Where they're like, if we pay these peasants who are already working 40 plus hours, which is what blows my mind about like all these arguments, like they're already right. working full time plus hours. It's like, we pay them too much. It's going to destroy America. It's going to wreck our economy. It really is brutal. It really is wild. It's, that's just wild. I mean, that's kind of a, a really like showing your ass moment if she's telling the truth. Because that, you know... We need to exploit harder, guys. Yeah. So we can't exploit less. I mean, all that does is just kind of underscore her wickedness mm. and, uh, you know, all that. Okay, so, look, uh, that's an argument. Again, not convinced <laughs> by it. Not not, not very convincing. Just uh, makes me think uh, that uh, she's a bad person. So, okay. So here's another argument. Here's another argument that this woman has. Um, let's hear that one. The department's effort to implement automatic updates to the minimum salary threshold will create immense problems for the hoteliers, especially regarding financial projections and their ability to plan for the future. According to the proposed rule, the automatic updates will occur every three years, regardless of economic circumstances at the time, which means that the threshold will be updated even there is an economic problem exists. Okay, so here, uh, another lie, right? Here's another lie. The lie being that, oh, if this updates every year, that's going to make my financial projections go crazy. I have, I, you know, because it's a lie, because if you're actually doing all of this sophisticated financial projections and all of this kind of stuff for a 10-year, 15, 20-year plan, in every other line item on your budget you must be if you're a good business person accounting for what inflation right you're accounting for inflation you're making an estimate it's not going to be perfect but you're accounting for inflation and so she's saying that if i have to account for inflation and keep the actual real value of this the same the same that's going to make i'm not going to be able to make financial projections I mean, that's obviously a lie, right? The 1% raise is a lot easier to calculate, so that's what they're going for. It's so... How do people say this? I, just in front of Congress, right? In front of their employees. In front of their employees <laughs> on national TV. Jeez. Like, I'm just going to lie to people, and that's how I want to get my way. 
I'm going to lie. Um, and so, look, here's a more diplomatic answer to her argument. Well, actually, ma'am, um, if the worker, if the overtime threshold is set at a what seems like a static amount, it, it actually is a changing amount because every year it erodes and it means less in terms of absolute dollars. So whether we index for inflation, which just keeps the status quo, or we set a number that erodes every year, it is a number that continues to change in effect and in reality every year. Um, it's, it's detrimental to workers. I mean, we, we saw that period from, what, 1975 to 2004 when there was no change of a threshold. The Trump administration signaled that it planned to revisit the threshold every three years, acknowledging that that is a best practice. Um, but of course, we haven't been able to revisit it that quickly again. The administrative process is, by definition, um, time-consuming, expensive. Um, it's fabulous government practice to do something that is efficient, that keeps things steady for workers, and again, keeps things steady for employers. I've been doing this work for 30 plus years and I've testified at a number of these hearings before and what I always hear from my colleagues in the business community is they want to be able to plan. They want predictability and they want bright line rules. Well, this rule gives them a bright line threshold and the predictability that every three years there will be modest increases that just keep pace with costs and if, if we're in a recessionary period, in fact, there would probably be no increase or there might be a decrease, in okay. fact, in the threshold. So, so there you go, right? Because no matter what you do, there's going to be a change. Either you're going to change the number and keep the value the same, or you're going to keep the number the same and the value is going to decrease every year. So those are your options. And obviously, the most fair thing to do is to continue to keep the value the same and what another argument that she says you know the, the business lady's like oh you know look if there's an economic downturn it'll be updated oh isn't that so scary you know it could also decrease the threshold could decrease if we're in an economic downturn and deflation happens and we get 20 percent deflation okay obviously the threshold would not increase they're right? literally just arguing for static wages yeah. against and recession uh, or i'm sorry inflation has uh if you y'all haven't noticed check it take a look at your yearly raise as opposed to inflation to find out if you're actually getting a raise yeah because if you're buying you know you're getting a two percent raise and there, there's inflation to ten percent there's a lot of money that's uh going out the door you're not yeah. going to be able to buy anything with so, look, we're knocking down these arguments one by one. Uh, we've got two more, and this one is kind of the funniest one that I have, uh, that, that they had during this hearing. Um, so let's play that. I, and one of the changes will be that the employees that they have for 10, 15 years who are on salary employees who feel like they are part of the business, they're part of the, the winning team working together, uh, will have to be moved to salary, and that's a in my opinion, um, demoralization uh, for, for our employees. And I don't think as a business owner, I want to take that step. And I don't think my employees would be happy with that uh, action either. So it's a, it's a, it's a loose-loose situation on the both sides when it comes to the employers and employees. 
Yeah, as you, I mean, I'm, I didn't even think of this question, but as you're, as you're talking, because it's such through, a stupid question. My previous career and most of my career, I worked as an IT professional, and I would, and my a lot of, my salary probably would have fallen under this new rule, and and I would have seen it as a demotion. I know that people may not understand that, but I would have seen it as a demotion because we, I, I enjoyed as a salary employee not having to clock in, being exploited, and clock out, right not having to have every minute of my day um, tracked. I, because I think that at the end of the day, the employer and I had a relationship that you do the work, you get paid, regardless of how, how much time that you're here. And so if you can. Yeah, I'd like to just add one more thing. You know, we're not looking over the shoulders for most of our team members. And, and I call them team members when I'm with them instead of our employees. Uh, because they are part of the team. We're not looking at, okay, what time you're coming in, what time you're leaving. I'll give you a perfect example. This morning when I was up, you know, six in the morning, I received the text from one of my employee. And I have the text saying, hey, I, I need to leave one o'clock today. Is it okay? Because um, she's changing her apartment from one apartment to another location, and they have people helping today. Now, this was not something I was expected. It was a last minute thing. So does stuff like this happens, uh, and I want to say it not like once in a while. I would say weekly basis if, if somebody's, you know, has to go to doctors or uh, so they have to pick up their child. There's so many examples that I can give you yeah. that us as a business owners, but because of our relationship with our employees is so close that they also know that Jagati is never going to say no because she knows that how important right. the family and your medical situations are. So uh, I think I think a lot of this relationship would change, uh, um, and 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 I think that would be a devastating, uh, especially for me as a business owner to see to see my employees in that position uh, and to see my business in that position as well. Yeah, so um, here's a, he, here's something that may make her feel better. Um, you can still allow your hourly employees to take the day off if they have to go to the hospital. Not illegal under this rule. Wowzers. Yeah, not illegal under this rule. Um, and just, you know, what a silly thing to say that, oh, you're not going to let them go to the hospital or something? Like, what's going to change, lady? Well, but also, Come like, on, lady. like, it's like, Don't oh, be mean. Um, <laughs> I would consider it Who's demotion. I would I would consider yeah. it a demotion if I got more money. I mean, just what I, you know, it's difficult to even have a response to that because it's so silly on its face. Like, oh, yeah, I would feel I would I would feel that sucks. If they ch if, if they demoted me, me and paid me more, yeah. I'd be so pissed. I'd be like, wait, you're taking responsibilities <laughs> yeah. and giving me money. Does that don't, happen? <laughs> don't throw me in the briar patch, Brer Fox. No, I would hate to go in the briar patch. That's my least favorite thing. How? I mean, yeah, oh, more lies. Lord. Okay, well, so here's the last thing that they, here's, uh, well, um, no, nah, that's not even, uh, we won't even do that, because it's another, it was kind of along those lines, um, and it's not, it, it's not even You had interesting. enough. You yeah, had, had enough. enough. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. We're over time, and we're oh, over time, and, and yeah, so, so there we go. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, went through the arguments, uh, not very convincing, uh, workers deserve overtime. Uh, that is still my stance after reviewing the hearing. All so. this to fight for people already fight against people already working forty plus hours. They're already they're already putting in the sweat. Crazy. Already putting it in. Absolutely crazy. All right. Well, uh, folks, appreciate your time. Uh, TVLR.fm/contact to um, 
to get our uh, get our um, newsletters in your inbox every single week. TBLR.fm slash contact 844-899-8857. If you would like to leave us a voicemail or send us a text message, you can do that there. 844-899-TBLR. Um, 14 or 15 shirts left. Is that what you said? Yeah, 14 or 15 shirts left. TBLR.fm slash. Okay. See you next week, folks. See you then.